Okay, I need you guys to do me a solid. On whichever platform you're listening to this episode right now, write a review for the Fashion League podcast. Writing a review helps other people discover the show, so don't tweet me, don't DM me, don't email me. Write a review, please, and thank you. You know, don't be selfish. Tell other people about the show you like. On this episode of the Fashion League podcast, I talk with fashion editor and writer Zoe Washington. Zoe is from Baltimore, Maryland, where she currently lives and works as a freelance writer and editor covering all things fashion and beauty. And she's basically had her work from home routine down pat long before the pandemic. She's the former fashion director of Brit & Co. And she's worked for publications including Elle, People, Vogue, Essence, and In Style. Zoe is also the founder of Sew Squad, like sewing machines sew. It's a DIY fashion brand, and it's been featured in Refining29 and People Magazine. She's also an art obsessive and a bona fide art aficionado. She has a bachelor's degree in art history from Columbia University and a master's degree in curation from Johns Hopkins. Everyone has opinions about the recently released New York Fashion Week schedule. It's a very thin schedule spread across Sunday, September 13th, and it goes through Wednesday, September 16th with most shows packed into Tuesday, September 15th. Most of these shows will be virtual with social distancing restrictions for live events and outdoor events. Only 50 people are allowed at these events, and that includes staff and production. So no piled up front row seats. Most notably in all this chatter about the New York Fashion Week schedule, Mark Jacobs is not on the schedule for this upcoming season. There is an article on the Fashion Week website that talks about how Mark Jacobs is New York Fashion Week. New York has tentpole shows. So the tentpoles are usually, we consider Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, uh, Donna Karen. Those big names used to be like the anchors of New York Fashion Week. And Mark Jacobs always closed the season. But, so this article from 2017 just talks about all of Mark Jacobs' shows. It's really popular during New York Fashion Week. I must have done some SEO voodoo magic because traffic just spikes every season around this time. So I'll put that in the show notes. I'll also put in the show notes uh, the article about the 15 facts on the history of New York Fashion Week, which also spikes around this time. So I'll just make it easier for everyone and just put it in this episode's show notes. But Marc Jacobs basically closes each season. And there was one season where Rihanna came with her Fenty, her Savage Fenty fashion show. And that season, Marc Jacobs was late for the first time, and which led to speculation that he did it on purpose because Rihanna was stealing his spotlight. But this season, we have the chairman of the Council of Fashion Designers of America, the CFDA chairman, Tom Ford, closing the season. Hi, Zoe. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So let's just start from the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I am from Baltimore, Maryland, mm -hmm. where I actually still live right now. Okay. Where did you go to school? So in Baltimore, what's hilarious is that when someone says, where did you go to school? They usually mean high school, which I realize 
the rest of the world does not mean. But, no, you um, know, I actually <laughs> learned that while I was at Hampton University. So, oh, then you know exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> where did you go to school? Where? So I, I went to Garrison for school. For anybody who's listening from Baltimore, <laughs> and then I went to Columbia University in New York for college, and then Johns Hopkins for my master's. Okay. So, what was your first inkling that you wanted to work in fashion? I've always known that I wanted to work in fashion. I would say probably when I was in elementary school, my grandmother and my mom got almost every single fashion book you can name, every magazine delivered to the house. And I would pour over W Magazine and L Magazine with my grandmother. And, you know, they're both very glamorous ladies and they just, they knew how to dress. They knew how to shop. I loved shopping with them. And I just always knew that I wanted to be in that world somehow. And so, you know, at a very young age, I'd say starting in middle school, I mean, you could show me something and I would be able to reference what runway it came off of and like what collection it was based off of my like studies of the shows. Really? Oh, I was, I was very intense about it. I would get, I'd save up and get like British Vogue and Spanish L and all of the different languages and French Vogue and all of the things so that I could see everything. How would you source all these editions? They weren't at like a local bookstore or museum. Yeah, they were. I mean, in Baltimore, we have a really great artist community here. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of kind of cool bookstores that did have those editions. And then, you know, we had the huge, you know, that was the heyday of like the Barnes and Noble kind of borders bookstore life. So they they had all the international editions. I I knew them well. So what was like your first fashion job, I'd call it? So my school, Garrison Forest, again, (laughs) Baltimore plug, had a program that was called ISP. So it's Independent Senior Project. And it was really designed so that you could intern somewhere, anywhere really, for like three weeks. And I had heard that a person ahead of me had interned at Cosmopolitan Magazine because at the time, the fashion director at Cosmo had been a graduate of our high school. And I wrote her feverishly for like a month. And I was just like, please let me come and do my ISP at Cosmo. And she was like, okay, like stop blowing up my phone, stop blowing up my email. (laughs) Like you can just come and do your ISP here. So for like three weeks, I moved to New York with a family friend and I interned at Cosmo. And by that time I had been heavy into the college admissions process. And they said to me, okay, if you go to school in New York, like you always have a spot here. You can always come and work here. So that was like my mission. Oh, back up. So how did you find out that school connection that you had someone who was an alum of your school? Where did you find that information? Well, I'll tell you, our school is, was hilariously small. I mean, (laughs) our graduating class was a class of, I want to say 50 people. And they considered that a pretty robust class. My graduating class was 100, so I thought it was like 121 or something, and I thought that was pretty small, but you beat me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, 50 people, and I think it was like record-breaking at the time, and so we knew, we were very well aware of like when people had done their ISPs, and also they had a really great college counselor, Joan Mudge. I'm just doing all the plugs. (laughs) Joan Mudge, who was so amazing about keeping in contact with alums. And so when it came down to ISP, she always knew of someone who would be able to have you and take you on and be like, oh, this person's probably perfect for this. So she was probably the first one to alert me to having that connection. 
So you did your ISP. You were in high school. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I think it was like junior or senior, senior year of high school. And then when you went to college, like how did you keep connection to like the fashion industry and like your internship opportunities? What was that like? You know, it was a different time. I, I do feel like nowadays it is probably better, but harder Mm -hmm. for interns to have like an opportunity like I did, you know, it was back in the day where no one was paid, which Mm -hmm. is really very much makes the barrier to entry that much higher and that much more difficult. I wasn't getting college credit, you know, Columbia didn't really accept internship credits at all. And so I organized my schedule so that I could just go into Cosmo at least two days a week. I was very lucky because it was my first fashion job. I was working in the fashion closet under the senior fashion editor at the time, Tamara Rappa, who is still one of my close friends today. And she basically took me under her wing and said, okay, when you come back to New York, like you can work at Cosmo. And I had two days where I would definitely be in the office. And she just kind of said to me, listen, if you have off time, if you have free time, if your classes are open, like just come, like just show, just be here, just call us and then just come over. You know, most people spent their times in like the student lounges. I definitely would get on the subway and head on down to Cosmo and I would just be in the fashion closet or helping on shoots or, you know, spending my morning on a shoot and then my afternoons at classes. So I really did just do as much as I possibly could. And she was amazing because she really taught me a lot, which was to make yourself indispensable. And when you do that, you know, they'll call you for other projects. So I got a lot of outside projects just based on my availability and me being in their face all the time. What does that mean? So, so I've heard that before, make yourself indispensable. What does that mean? Like when you're on your internship, how can you do that? It sounds daunting, but it really is like the best, one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. So she basically meant when you are here, it's not about you. It's about what the job that needs to be done and make it so that you're known for doing a good job. And so really what that meant at somewhere like Cosmopolitan and that, you know, eventually I interned at Marie Claire and the same piece of advice was given to me there. And what it really meant was, okay, you might not be able to spend five days a week here. You may not be working here full time, but have it so that people know you and they know that they can count on you. And they know that when they give you a job, that job is done. They don't have to think about it anymore. They can count on you being efficient and effective. And that's may seem really straightforward and really obvious, but it actually is something that many people don't deliver. A lot of times, you know, when you, especially at the intern level, you know, there's so many different factors, whether or not you can afford to be there, you're also working, you're also going to school, you're surrounded by all these people who look like they have so much money and and there's that kind of disparity. There's so many factors that make it a little bit difficult to kind of fit in. And what they really meant was like fit in where you can and just make it so that people know you for your hard work. And then that will really take care of itself. And it's really helped me to this day. So how many people did you intern with? Like, what was your intern class with? And were you like friendly with them? Do you still talk to them to this day? What was that like? Well, at Cosmo, it was sort of revolving door. I think there was like a set of four or five of us. I have not kept in contact with anybody in my intern group then, but Tamara, who was my first fashion boss, and this was in the year 2000, and I still talk all the time. And I've worked with her in many different capacities. And just recently, you know, she featured my company on her amazing platform. So she heads a whole 
like fashion outlet. So she's just been amazing and super supportive. But at Marie Claire, I interned with, I think it was probably like five or six people. Nicole Chapiteau, who is at Vanity Fair, was interning with me and we definitely still talk to this day. So after your internship, like how did you get that first paying gig? It was funny. I, you know, like I said, it's, it's really all about who you know, and it's really about making yourself absolutely essential to the process. So when I was at Marie Claire and I was interning, I would, it was very similar. I, you know, would just make my schedule fit around having free time to go to Marie Claire. And so I tried to make myself known. I tried to introduce myself to everyone and I got the attention of Zoe Glasner, who was a fashion assistant there. And she introduced me to the market director, Kate Dimmick. And Kate Dimmick was, you know, sourcing some potential employees because she was going off to start a different magazine with Hearst called Shop, et cetera, which was like Hearst's answer to Lucky at the time. And she needed assistance. And so she asked me what I consider joining. And she was going to be bringing over a couple of people who I already knew from Marie Claire, including Genevieve Arola, to all these people I still talk to on a like weekly basis. And so I went over there and joined them immediately after graduating college. Like I graduated, moved back to Baltimore with all of my stuff from my dorm room, packed up another U-Haul and drove to the city. And it was just like a a tumultuous thing. I mean, I just didn't know anything. So my sister and I drove a U-Haul to New York city. We got in an accident and we, Oh, it was crazy. And then I went to the storage facility where my stuff had been stored and I got in an accident. I had to go to the emergency room. I was supposed to go to to work that day, which like no one, I don't know why I would schedule it as the same day. I was supposed to go to work that day. So finally, my sister had to call from the emergency room and say, Zoe is in the emergency room. We can't, she can't show up to work. And then when I did start at shop, et cetera, there was no desk for me. I wasn't on the payroll. Like it was just a mess, but it ended up being just like a really wonderful experience, but it start, it got off to a, a rather rocky start. Okay. I'm starting to laugh because you just glossed over it. I got in an accident. I was at the emergency room, but you came out. (laughs) Okay. So what is like a highlight of your career? Something that happened early on in your career and you're just like, that's something that sticks with you. Hmm, That's a good question. I don't know if it's one specific thing. I think that the thing that I've always gone back to is being really grateful for the fact that I've built some really lasting friendships and I've met some amazing people, you know, at every publication that I've worked at, there's been like a high and a low. And I think some of the things that have kept me going is that I don't overvalue the highs and I don't internalize the lows anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cause they can come in the same breath. And so when I was at shop, et cetera, for example, you know, just being there, working my way up from literally not getting paid to being an assistant and then freelancing was a high and then going to O Magazine and Essence Magazine and L Magazine and sort of being able to go into these editorial departments and feel right at home and kind of be myself no matter where I was or who I was with, even at Vogue, I think was really, that to me is something that I always look back at as a a source of pride because I think it's very difficult in this business particularly to maintain your sense of self and to be who you are and to 
not really get caught up in the romanticized version of what fashion has to offer, but to be a hard worker and to have a vision. And so that's something that I've always been able to look back and be proud of myself about is that I didn't, I mean, there's times obviously that I probably would have done something differently or that I, you know, could have changed something, but all in all, I feel like I've stayed pretty much the same throughout and no one who met me at Vogue and then met me at L or Essence is like, oh, I don't even know who that person is or that was a totally different Zoe. It's the same exact person day in, day out through all those different times. To kind of switch gears, but not really. Let's talk about what you were wearing as an assistant. Like, do you, what, what did that look like? And has your personal style changed? You know, I would say it's difficult. You know, I, I was recently talking to Jade Frampton, who's the editorial director at Shop Bazaar, and I worked with her at Elle magazine. And we were talking about this very thing, like how we dressed as assistants. And she was sort of saying, you know, oh, a lot of fast fashion and depending a lot on fast fashion. I think I did too. I think, you know, that was really the beginning of fast fashion coming to the States and being, you know, people like learning what Zara was and H&M and, and Target's designer collaboration. Like, so I hit at a good time where, you know, good design was accessible, but I was a big believer in a couple of different things. One, thrift and vintage shopping, I think is like key. So, you know, I typically wear same palette of clothes, black, grays, tans, those types of things. And I would mix in a lot of vintage or thrift store finds that were like nice materials, like cashmeres or really great wool jackets, like blazers. But I'm also a very good bargain shopper. Like I could teach a masterclass. I am very good at like going to the sale, going to the sale, finding the sample sale, finding an off the track, kind of off the beaten track place. And so there was like a Saks distribution center near Baltimore and I would go and I would shop there and I would shop the outlets and I would buy like designer fashion, like design, really great designer pieces and like Lomans and stuff. And I wouldn't buy a ton, but I would just buy a couple of things and I'd wear them till they fell off of me. And definitely, you know, I remember at one point, when I was at Marie Claire, one of my bosses was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, oh, great. Here we go. And she's like, I just need to know, like, how is this happening? I was like, what? And she was like, you have the new Marc Jacobs bag. I know that Jill Sonder boot that you're wearing. Like, how does this happen? And in hindsight, I should have been really insulted because I don't know why you pull over the one black intern Mm. and ask her why she has designer (laughs) stuff. I knew that I had awesome stuff. And she just didn't understand how that could be knowing that I didn't get paid. So I probably should have been way more insulted well, than I actually was. I guess it's good that you didn't because that could have just ragged you down for the rest of your time there. So it could have. in it hindsight, could've. yes. <laughs> but, um, that's amazing though. Like at least she, she noticed, she saw it. But <laughs> Oh yeah. And that was the thing. I think, you know, what I would say to somebody now, if you're an intern, I don't, think that you need to think about breaking your budget. But I think what people don't realize is that, A, when you try too hard, people in power can see that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, they're going to see your work, your hard work, your intelligence way more than they'll see exactly what you wear. But keep in mind that, you know, especially in fashion and beauty, it is a visual medium. So like, if they don't trust that you're going to be able to 
dress yourself appropriately. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to dress exactly like everybody there, but you have to be clothed appropriately and professionally. If you're showing your own unique sense of style and it also looks good, then that's going to go far because you don't have to wear pencil skirts and Dior or anything like that, or have a Chanel bag. If anything, people are kind of like, okay, well, here she comes with her Chanel bag. <laughs> it's more, you know, it's more important to come through with it's totally fine to be like, oh yeah, here's this bag that I got at a thrift store that looks amazing and and it hits a trend. It shows that you can find beauty out of anything and that you have good taste. People are more interested in taste than they are in designers. True. So you talked about how you would comb over the international editions of your favorite magazines. What else were you reading? What were your go-tos at early on in your career? Well, I would say, you know, when I applied to go to college, my mom like looked over my applications, like after the fact, and she was horrified because almost every application asked like, Oh, list all of the books that you're reading. And I think the first sentence I wrote was like, I don't really read books. Oh no. It's like, Oh, sign her up. Like, no. So my mom was like, what did you do? Why would you tell them that? And instead I listed every international edition of a magazine that I read because I was well-read. I mean, you could get me in a classroom or whatever. And if a teacher was talking about a current event or if somebody was talking about some obscure cultural thing or like a new writer or whatever, I knew it. I knew those references because I was reading Vanity Fair and W and L and Harper's Bazaar and Marie Claire and Cosmo and Teen Vogue and everything. I was reading everything every month, cover to cover from the back to the front and then back again. So I knew those references in and out. And I've never been huge into fiction, which is, I think, a weird thing to say, but it is true. My husband really enjoys fiction and I am I'm always like, that sounds great. I just, I can't hear somebody else's voice in my head sometimes. So I am always reading, you know, either magazines or I like to read a lot of business-based autobiographies Mm -hmm. or books about various like business tycoons, which I think is just me trying to be my own hype person. But like I was reading uh, the Walt Disney book and I read like the Charles Schultz book, you know, like those types of books that talk about what it is to have an idea and grow it from like a kernel to something like really magnificent, because I find that really inspiring and I probably should read more fiction, but that's usually what I wrap my head around. That's interesting that you say that you can't hear other people's voices in your head. I was in a book club and like, I could not wrap my head around, like someone expressed that similar sentiment that was like, they couldn't hear the person speaking. I was like, what are you, I don't, I can't, (laughs) I hear, (laughs) it's going to sound absurd. It's like, I hear voices (laughs) when I read. (laughs) I mean, you know, what really gets me, I mean, and I'll, I'll read obviously like newspapers and things like that. And I'm, you know, digital editions. What turns me off is if I'm trying to read a story about something that's a very fact-based, straightforward event, and it's like, the moss was dewy with S and No, like, <laughs> what happened? What time of day was it? You like, those are the things the that I can't, I can't stand. And she's like, I walked through this valley and I felt upon myself. No, if I see too many big words, I know you're trying too hard. Oh, gosh. And I don't want to deal with it. So... Yeah. So that's sort of where I've been with that, but I'm trying. 
you know what you said about your college application also to back up about how you mentioned all the magazines that you were reading that speaks to like the recent issues that I guess larger society who doesn't actually read Teen Vogue they were Mm -hmm. having an issue with them approaching different topics that would definitely be interesting to teenage girls and like Teen Vogue should stick to fashion and that sort of critique so it's important that a lot of these publications do address (laughs) these societal issues so that people completely yeah completely and I also think that like Teen Vogue is a good example of it you know that was a magazine watching its trajectory from the beginning where it was really about like society kids Mm -hmm. and celebrity kids and has morphed into something so much greater and so much more important, I think is great to see. And, you know, like I said, when I would read these magazines, I would always couple Seventeen magazine with, you know, I don't know, a New Yorker or something like that. But that being said, those magazines tend to be more straightforward and unencumbered Mm -hmm. than some of the traditional like women's print media. But, you know, now in the digital era, things kind of change because there's so much out there that you can read and so many resources. But I do think it's important to find like a spot where you can hear your voice or hear a voice that reflects your values spoken. Hear a voice. We just talked about this. Okay. Exactly. Are you ready to play faux or fashion? And so I'm going to tell you the rules. So for fashion, I'm going to give you three fashion headlines, three fashion news stories, and you're going to tell me whether it's a real story, it's fashion, or I made it up, it's completely false, and it's faux. So I made it up. Got it. True or false? Easy peasy. Ready? Your first question. Denim was invented in 1856 after a cotton gin fell into a vat of indigo, creating a new fabric. I feel like I've actually heard that fact. I'm going to say fashion. How about that? It's false. I completely made it up. Oh, that's hilarious. I just remember hearing about some sort of accidental thing coming up with denim. But yeah, okay, let's go. That's right. That's faux. Yeah. I only asked because I was just reading your Zoe Report article about denim. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, let me get it with the Heavily researched. So... (laughs) Well, you had a lot of quotes from people that supported. Okay. Anyway, it's a good one. Please read it. Thank you. (laughs) Your next question. Ready? Yeah. For their September issue, Cosmopolitan Magazine decided to include a cute little face mask with the issue as a gift to 10,000 of their subscribers with a cover line that read, wear a damn mask. Oh my God, this, this is, is killing issue. me. I'm going to say fashion. That yes. Should be true. Okay, good. True. <laughs> like that okay. should, even if it wasn't true, that should be true. Yeah. So the editor she, and her team, they were seeing all these headlines about people not wanting to wear masks and they were essentially fed up. So they gave 10,000 people masks. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yes. Okay. So you're, you're one, four, two. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Get this okay. last question, then you win. Okay. You win nothing. Bragging rights or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you win. Okay. Supreme, the hype beast streetwear brand that dropped the Supreme branded Oreo back in, what is that? Spring, summer. It was in March. Okay. So they dropped the Oreo. This time they're back again with a beauty collab with makeup maven Pat McGrath. And the oh, class- fashion. Oh, fashion. I love her. Yes. You know it. <laughs> Fashion, fashion, fashion. Yes. So the fashion. <laughs> the collab will include one single red lipstick and it'll be called Supreme. 
We don't know. I mean, it's iconic. Already iconic. (laughs) Already iconic. We don't know how much it costs. (laughs) We don't Don't need to take my money. I don't even care. I don't even wear lipstick. You want really? No, you're not a red lipstick girl. I'm not. I've got really full lips, which I'm now proud of, but no, I don't wear lipstick. I used to be all about the matte red and now I'm very heavily into gloss. Gloss is my thing. Right now. Yeah, I just tried the new Fenty Beauty glosses. Mm-hmm. The, there's some like chocolate one and like a nudey one, and they're great. They stay really nicely, and they're very moisture rich. Okay. Well, that's the end of that segment. So you, you won. Ta-da! Yay! Yay. Yeah. Bragging rights. Off to a rocky back. start, but yeah. I got it. <laughs> yes, you came back. <laughs> that's what matters. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about any productivity hacks. People, I'm still quarantining. Are you quarantining? Are you going out? I never not quarantine. Here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. I mean, when I, so I, when I'm, I was living in New York for a long, long time. And then I moved back to Baltimore with my husband. We moved to Germany and then we moved back to Baltimore. And when I moved back to Baltimore, I started working for a company that's based in San Francisco. And so I worked from home. And I set up what we call mega desk, which is like all of my, my computers and my monitors and my, all the stuff. And so I've been working from home for, you know, after Britain co where I was working closed, I started freelancing and then I started working for Bravo, but I've been working from home and working remotely for five years, six years. So when when everybody was like, Oh, I got to start working from home. It's quarantine. I was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the way, it's the way everything's going to be from now on, to be honest. And the only thing that's really changed has been my collection of sweatpants and stretch pants. That's the only thing. <laughs> so my husband, he only gets dressed on the top. So he'll wear his business shirt. Sorry to like break it to whoever on his team is listening <laughs> to this, <laughs> but he's like wearing his basketball shorts on the bottom. It's terrible. Do you like get dressed up for your work day or is it just like, do you wear your best sweats for your work? I wear my best sweats. <laughs> okay. So like, I, I honestly feel bad for when people will do the half look, uh, mm-hmm. like the button down and, and pants are in shorts because I feel like the jig is up. Like no one, everyone knows. So <laughs> I think it's better to just be authentic and wear your best sweats. I have a couple of cashmere cotton sweatshirts from Nadam, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend because they're washable and they're breathable and they're cozy and you can wear them out and look polished. And I have the matching pants, you know, it's still, they're still sweatpants, but I find that if you get it all in one color, you have the semblance of an outfit. And then right. I usually kind of go makeup free and do my brows and then throw in a pair of gold hoops and I, and some necklaces and you can't tell me anything. Like, I think I look great. Yeah, I'm sure you do look amazing. Yeah, I Especially. do not. Trust me, my husband would disagree. But I think I look awesome. Oh, my. That's all that matters, honestly. You said you go makeup free. What is your skin like? Because for me, my skin has been like, at the start of quarantine, I was drinking all the water, doing all the things I needed to do. And then I kind of tapered off. Yeah. What, what ha- like my friends are saying, oh, my skin is the best it's ever been. Like I have all this time to commit to skincare, six steps, blah, blah, blah. I, what, no. are you doing? what are you doing? No. no. You know, I, I think I'm a big fan of the skincare routine. I'm a big fan of taking care of your skin. I've never been good about drinking enough water. So I try watching my husband drink, you know, tons of water every day makes me feel bad about what I've done, but... <laughs> 
I just sort of let it go. I am early to a happy hour. So (laughs) there's that to add to the dehydration. So there's that issue. But I will do, when I wake up, I do fully wash my face and moisturize it. I do a whole day oil. I do an exfoliating pad. I do all the things. And at night, I take special care, including face rolling and using my gua sha tool. So I like to do those types of things. So you have tools. That's intense. You can, okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I sit in bed and I'll read you know, I'll go over my notes of like what I need to do for the next day and I'll just be rolling my face. Or if we're watching TV, I just roll my face. And I, yeah, I've fallen out of it a little bit recently. I keep a face roller at my desk. It really helps. But an ice roller, I use an ice roller too. So I've invested in those types of things. And I've also have like probably just a five minute makeup routine. So it's even when I do put on makeup, which I do whenever I leave the house, it's not overwhelming. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. And you're wearing sunscreen too. I do SPF 40, like a tinted sunscreen. I think it's by, oh, I always forget who it's by. I'll let you know later, (laughs) but I do that. And then I, and then I just build it from there. And I actually have quite a few like drugstore. I'm kind of typically known a little bit to be a little bit snobby when it comes to things. So as a surprise to some friends, I do rely on like drugstore beauty more so than anything. I have a drugstore sunscreen, Neutrogena spray. Mm -hmm. And I was using it incorrectly this whole time because it's a spray. I was spraying it directly in my face. Lord knows how many years I shaved off of my life. Oh, my God. What are you supposed to do? Put it in your hand? Yeah, you're supposed to spray it in your hand and then rub it in your... What is the purpose of the spray? Oh, my God. Is it like like an aerated spray or is it like an aerosol kind of spray? It's an aerated spray. So like a... Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I would put that directly on my face, too. Yeah, don't do it. It's not right. It's not right. I read the instructions on bottle number two, okay? So I would yeah. do the whole Don't do bottle. it. Don't do it. Okay. Well, that is the end of this episode. I'm going to go put on sunscreen. I'm going to go outside. It's my daughter's birthday, and we're going to have some cake. That's what we're going to do. Sunscreen oh, well, it's been a pleasure. And tell Thank me about you so much for having me. Yes, of course. This was fun. Have a good Tuesday. Thank <laughs> you.